0: We're recording. I can see it. Yeah. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Seattle on Tap. I am Courtney Jacobson. And I am Ashley Toten. How's it going? I see your face. (laughs) This one?
1: No one. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's going pretty well. you know, life is starting to sort of be normal up in these parts. I got a massage this week
0: oh, and did? it was
1: wonderful. Oh, I do I feel can't... like somebody beat the shit out of me though.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh yeah. I have a few to schedule again, so I need to get on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All about that self-care. Yeah. I feel like I need to fix the lighting situation in here. I'll figure it out.
1: You're being a creeper in the dark?
0: Yeah. Hi. Hello,
1: Clarice. (laughs) I already cracked into my beer over here.
0: What are you drinking?
1: I, you know, I like a dark lager and a Schwartz beer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am drinking the Single Hill Rain Shadow Black Lager. Uh, from Yakima, Washington, Single Hills, the brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a Schwartz beer, which is a dark lager that originated in Germany. Uh, they tend to be more opaque and black in color. Um, they're really chocolatey and like have a lot of coffee notes, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but are really light and crisp still um, and have a really nice light mouthfeel, rather. Uh, this specific beer is 5.1%. Um, The best way I can describe them, and I've used this information on our website to describe a CDA too, so just replacing one of the terms. Mm -hmm. I like to tell people when I serve folks, dark loggers and CDAs, Yeah. If, (laughs) I like to describe this, if a pilsner and a porter or a stout had a delicious little beer baby, it would be a Schwartz beer. And if I'm talking about a CDA, (laughs) I always say, if, <laughs> if an IPA and a stout porter had a little delicious beer, maybe it would be a CDA.
0: But, nice.
1: Yeah, delicious. What are you <laughs> drinking today?
0: Um, I am drinking a... I went back to a hazy IPA. Actually, this is a hazy Imperial IPA. And it is from Adroit Purity out of Virginia. Um... And it's called Heretics of Nine, and it's written Roman, Roman numeral, I'm assuming. Either that or it's Heretics of IX, and I'm just a big nerd and don't know <laughs> I'm trying to make it a Roman numeral. I don't know. But I chose this because the definition of heretic is relating to my story. Heretic is a person holding an opinion at odds with what is generally accepted. So that is how it's going to go along with my story. (laughs) But that being said, it is 8%. um, And it is where did I see that? Oh, oh, here we go. Um, it has, it's double dry hopped with mosaic, azaka, Idaho seven, Comet and Amarillo hops. And, um, I was just telling you before we started recording when my, I took my first sip that it, um, I can kind of pick out the mosaic because I'm such a psycho for mosaic hops. Um, but also at the same time, all the hops they chose, they balanced so well that it's not like that usual progression of like, oh, it tastes like this and then this and then this and then this. It's like they all just kind of mush into this deliciousness. Mush <laughs> it's right in there, huh? <laughs> it, it's, it's a mush flavor of yummy. <laughs> it is
1: very yellow. Mm. It's nice to be able to see, by the way. Yeah. I can actually see what you're drinking now. It's wonderful. Yeah.
0: And I fixed the shade so you can actually, my lighting in here is not as bad.
1: <laughs> you let light into your layer. Let there be <laughs> light.
0: <laughs> yeah, I usually keep it very dark in this room. <laughs> I like to sleep in the dark. Um. <laughs> so... I go first today, mm-hmm. and I am going to talk about someone that I firmly believe should be taught about in history class in all of the schools, I'm going to talk about Fred Hampton, well Fred Hampton Sr., um, he had a baby he never got to meet, but I'll get to that later. Um, he was a murdered um, Black Panther Party leader, and um, he was murdered by the police. And That never happens all the time. Yeah, and it's, it's a crazy situation. Um, Fred Hampton was only 21 when... He was murdered, yeah. Maybe um, it's infuriating because he had done so much already by the time he was only 21, and to think about what else he could have done had he not been erased from the planet. Um, so I'll get into it. Uh, Frederick Allen Hampton was born August 30th, 1948 in Summit, Illinois, and grew up in Maywood. Both of them are just suburbs of Chicago. His parents moved to that area um, from Louisiana as part of the Great Northward Migration or also called the Black Migration. Um, Upwards of, I believe it was six million African-Americans moved north in the early 20th century out of the south because racism. Um, <laughs> and um, just try. they settled in basically from northern east coast to the midwest all the way up here to the west coast, but well, pretty- almost all of the west coast because we coo. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, As a kid, Fred Hampton was a gifted student and athlete and even dreamed of becoming a center fielder for the Yankees. Uh, He graduated with honors from high school in 1966 and then enrolled and attended Triton Junior College where he majored in pre-law. He chose law because as... He got started growing a little older through high school, started being a lot more aware of everything going on in the world and how it was definitely, especially a kid in the poor suburbs of Chicago, not fair for him. Um, So he chose law because he planned to utilize the knowledge of the legal system in his defense against police brutality against African-Americans. And to be honest, all people of color um he was a big promote proponent of it not just being black americans he he worked really hard to uh bring together all the communities of all ethnicities and he has a pretty famous speech um talking about basically listing off all racist and saying how it's you know, this police brutality and the way that uh, society is run at the, at the time or even still now is very much run in order to keep people of color in poverty. Anyway, so he became um, active in the NAACP and assumed leadership of its West Suburban Branches Youth Council just out of college. He began. He began, or actually, during college. Sorry, he began demonstrating leadership abilities and helped to grow the NAACP youth group to 500 members strong in a community that was only 27,000. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> he hoped to achieve social change through community organizing and nonviolent activism. So basically, what we're still trying to do. <laughs> Um. About the same time that he was doing all of this, the Black Panther Party was vis- was rising in national p- prominence, and Fred Hampton was quickly accra- attracted to the group's approach. Oh, somebody's walking by. <laughs> quickly attracted to the approach, which was based on a ten point program that integrated. Black self-determination with class and economic critique from Maoism and Maoism is basically just kind of like the very, very early beginnings of socialism. Um, So in other words, they're just trying to raise up Black self-esteem and bring about some socialism and which is really just communities owning themselves and taking care of themselves and not corporations. Mm
1: -hmm. What a concept. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, In November of 1968, Fred Hampton moved to downtown Chicago um, to be closer to and join the Black Panther Party's Illinois chapter. Uh, And over the next year, he was integral in a number of significant achievements one of them was one of his bigger ones was brokering the brokering of the non-aggression pact and this was with um chicago's most powerful street gangs in other words he inspired them to stop fighting each other and start fighting um the so social and economic oppression that they were all facing, and um, he strove to create a class-conscious multiracial alliance among the Black Panther Party, the Young Patriots organization, and the Young Lords. Um, In the late 60s, there were a lot of different cultural, um, racial organizations trying to help their people be better and get fair treatment. And he was kind of a pioneer in saying, not just you guys, not just us, not just these guys, all of us need to band together to fight all this oppression because we're fighting the same thing. And if we band together, we're not going to be competing. We're going to be doing it together to get the same results we want anyway.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So... This is actually something that um, famous people like Jesse Jackson later started utilizing and several other, like Martin Luther King Jr., lots of people we do for sure know more about would utilize his methods. Um, At one point, he was arrested at a peaceful picketing with the Young Lords leader, Jose Chacha Jimenez, and they both were charged with, quote, mob action, um, which, actually, yeah, <laughs> they were peacefully protesting outside of a community area, and all of them arrested for mob action. Can you, I mean, I was about to say, can you imagine, but oh, wait, we can. <laughs> <laughs> Shit's still happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but this helped inspire them to form what they called, well, what he called the Rainbow Coalition, that later, Jesse Jackson used his term for Rainbow Coalition to mean different things, sort of same, but a little bit different things in his own talks. Anyway, um, formed the Rainbow Coalition that joined the Lung- Young Patriots the Young Lords, the Black Panther Party, the Students for Democratic Society, the Brown Berets, and the Red Guard Party. All of them, just various factions of younger to middle-aged groups of varying racial degrees and everything. Um, Like I said, so that they can all fight together. At one point, he was arrested at a, oh, I already said that. (laughs) Due to his organization skills he rose quickly within the Black Panther Party and became chairman of the Chicago chapter. As chairman he helped start and mind you at this point he's 21.
1: Um, That blows my mind.
0: Yeah I just I think of myself as 21 and I could I could barely pay some bills let alone do some organizing like this (laughs) it's just it blows my mind um yeah as chairman he helped start a start and worked closely with chicago's people's clinic so the black panther party um mainly because of fred hampton decided that they needed to help their community um, in more than just one way. And part of that was health. And so they started these free clinics in the more impoverished communities, generally Black communities, um, everywhere that they had Black Panther Party um, chapters. So he helped with one of the first ones in Chicago. And the thing is, he, they also had within these free clinics, they had an office of a um, basically a social worker. And the social worker had files um, that they could use for references. So if someone went in for a burn um, before they left, um after seeing a doctor that was volunteering their time um they the doctor or the nurse would ask is there anything else we can do to help you with your life right now and then they would go and sit in this office and talk to the social person and if they needed to talk to a teacher or a tutor for something they would give them the number to someone that's willing to volunteer their time and help tutor this person. If they needed help getting a bank account, they would, if they, they also talked about, um, they were some of the first people to talk about um, credit unions because they were owned by the people and used and decided everything for the people that you know actually ran the credit union. Um,
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, they would, So all of these things at the clinic, but he also taught political education classes at the Black Party Panther chapter every single day at 6 a.m. Again, he's 21 and he's teaching political classes. (laughs) That alone, just by itself. I'm like, nope, couldn't do that. I'm still learning (laughs) I can't teach people shit. (laughs) Um, Oh, wait, there's more. He also launched a project for community supervision of police. (laughs) Um, Can we get that back? (laughs) He also helped start the community free breakfast programs that all of the Black Panther Party uh, chapters would do. So every morning, the Black Panther Party, if you were a kid in, in the area, you could just go up there and they'd give you some breakfast and maybe help you with your homework before school or, you know, just...
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, all of these things are very threatening. They're very scary. If you're J. Edgar Hoover who ran the FBI at the time. um. <laughs> Uh, He began keeping close tabs on Fred Hampton's activities. Um, J. Edgar Edgar Hoover was determined to prevent the cohesive Black movement in the U.S. He believed that the Black Panther Party and the other groups were going to cause a revolution that could threaten the U.S. government and society as we knew it. So in other words, he was just super scared that he couldn't be a super powerful white guy anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what that sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> They're trying to take my power. <laughs> but I earned Ugh. it by being born white. <laughs> gross. Gross, gross, gross. Yeah. Um, okay. So the FBI put taps on Fred's phone and his mom's phone. And added him to the, quote, agitator index, which was some list they had of people that they were agitated with, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, he was down as a, quote, key militant leader. Not militant, sorry. His whole philosophy was being peaceful. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So in late 1968, they, being the FBI, recruited William O'Neill to infiltrate the Black Panther Party in Chicago. Um, And in return, they would drop all of his felony charges that he had pending. So, a little bit of a blackmail situation. For a black male.
1: (laughs) That always goes really well.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) Plus a monthly stipend. So, O'Neill choosing to not have his felony charges, decides to do this. He joins the Black Panther Party, and he quickly rises and ends up as one of Fred Hampton's bodyguards, which sucks um, because he starts giving information to the FBI. Um, some of that information included a hand-drawn Diagram of all of Fred's apartment. He had a four-bedroom apartment, and it detailed everything in the apartment down to the furniture arrangements. Hmm.
1: Um. Nobody can see my face except you, and that was and
0: it was big eyes for a second. That's there. not good. Dudes. <laughs> so once. O'Neill was in. Hoover, Jadgar Hoover demanded that O'Neill start to create a rift between the Black Panther Party and some of the other groups, um, which ugh, it's it's like the same old freaking song, song and dance. You know, certain members of leadership start feeling threatened, so they infiltrate the people that are trying to help their communities and start trying to make them argue with each other. So like the race war we have right now, hmm. And yeah, so also in repeat directives, Hoover demanded that a covert um, group within the government that didn't officially exist, He kept demanding that they investigate and destroy essentially what the Black Panther Party stood for. He wanted them to be um, erased or at least discredited within their communities. Um, This group called COINTELPRO, which I'm sure stands for, is an acronym for a bunch of shit, but it was basically (laughs) this group that... (laughs) <laughs> um, would perform a series of co- covert, illegal actions taken to discredit, infiltrate, and dismantle American organizations. So, any progressive organizations, they would get in there and fuck them up within. Um, okay. So now we fast forward to October third, nineteen sixty nine. Fred Hampton taught a political education course at a local church and afterwards he and his pregnant fiance and several other members of the black party or black panther party went back to his four-bedroom apartment to have a late dinner and a lot of times people would just kind of crash there because he had a a bigger place than other people and he was the leader Mm -hmm. um and uh William O'Neill, being kind of his main body bodyguard by this point, was already back at the apartment and had made dinner for everyone. Dun dun dun. dun. It <sighs> um, sounds so nice. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the asshole slips a barbituate into ha- Hampton's drink. Hampton didn't take drugs of any kind. He was very much against it because that would basically just discredit a lot of things that he was going for. If, you know, anyone, he knew FBI was kind of keeping tabs on him. He knew he was against the police. He wasn't going to give them anything. Yeah. So he never took drugs of any kind. So anyway, um, O'Neal slips some sleeping pills basically into his drink and then leaves around 1 in the morning after he was really sure that Hampton had fallen asleep um a few hours later around 4 a.m the pol- a police team had arrived and um by now it's December 4th because it's 4 a.m um they arrived at the apartment building. It was a pretty large team. They had like eight people in the front, six people in the back, a bunch of people in the hallways. They finally, everybody gets assembled. They're ready. They get the radio go ahead. And at 445 in the morning, one member, um, they they kicked down the door of Hampton's apartment unit. Um, one member of the Black Panther Party was kind of staying up, kind of was trying to stay up and be kind of guarding the place. He was sitting on the couch, um, had a shotgun in his lap. The When the police bust down the door, he, of course, goes to try and grab his gun and shoot, but they shot him before he could aim well. So... His gun shoots the ceiling, and I'm making all these like arm motions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I can see you.
0: <laughs> um, but but the police shoot him in the chest, and he dies. Um, the shot in the ceiling was the only gunfire by anyone that was in the apartment. All other gunshots were fired by the police doing this quote unquote raid they had said that they w- got a tip that there were mass amounts of arms being stockpiled in the apartment, so they were there to to deal with that and um, so by the time the there had been an investigation. They counted. There were between ninety and ninety-nine bullets, which is just fucked up. Guys, first of all, even if there was a shootout,
1: yeah. he's one fucking dude. Yeah, you shouldn't shouldn't take you a hundred shots if that's the case. You're a bad fucking shot, and you shouldn't be carrying a gun in the first place, right?
0: Um they let's see here yeah they peppered the place all over there's shots basically through all the walls from the hallway into the apartment basically they just aimed at knowing that they're they were on the other side of the wall um they found fred sleeping because he had been knocked the fuck out by some sleeping pills um Sleeping in his room next to his nine month pregnant girl or er, fiance um, their baby was born a matter of a month or two after he was dead and um, anyway um, they quickly grabbed her and forcefully took her out of the apartment um they grabbed fred and drug him to the doorway of the bedroom shot him point blank in the head twice to make sure he was dead oh fuck and there are some pretty graphic quotes that were overheard of what the police were saying and i it essentially was just is he dead no he's not two shots and then now the fucker's gone um yeah yeah so the next day, there's a press conference, and the police announced that they arrested the violent the violent offenders because they had supposedly a you know stockpile of arms, and um, they arrested seven of like seven people from the apartment saying that they were terrorists, essentially. And um, those charges were la- later dropped. And at one point, um, there was a break-in at the FBI office in Pennsylvania that proved the existence of this cointal pro-illegal um, intelligence Program within the FBI and proved that they had in fact just attacked Fred Hampton because he was a threat to them and their society. Um, of course, no police officers went to jail for any of this. Um, Hampton's funeral was attended by 5,000 people and he was eulogized by... Um, Black leaders such as Jesse Jackson um, and Ralph Abernathy, who was Martin Luther King's successor, Mm -hmm. um, and many others. He, um, in a way, helped bring about some change and helped infuriate the Black black community a little more. which, as we know, the civil rights movement went well into the 70s. And Mm -hmm. this is part of why it got this added fuel to the fire. Um, His son is, to this day, traveling around to Black Lives Matter marches and giving talks he's had a bit of a troubled past but to be honest i was reading some of those articles and it's hard to know how much of the things he's being um arrested for arrested for are even true considering what we know about how things are written about people that go against the status quo and Well, yeah, and if the
1: FBI was referring to his dad as a terrorist, mm-hmm. yeah. he's probably on a list somewhere of, like, yeah. father was a terrorist, whether he's or not been, that's I true. mean, he's
0: gone to, he's gone to prison m- multiple times. He um, was, at one point, sentenced to, like, 18 years. I'm pretty sure he did not serve all that time um, for throwing uh, Molotov cocktails into a Korean business, I believe is what it was. Um, The weird thing about that is it was really hard to find any information on why he would have done that. So that's kind of what led me to the, what really happened? Like what's, what's the backstory? I'm not going to just sign on to him being some guy that's terrorizing random communities you know No, and that kind of goes with
1: the have more sources than one source for information yeah we we're talking about in our black lives matter episode like exactly don't always just believe the first thing somebody tells you there's probably yeah. more than one side or even two sides to the story
0: exactly which brings me to my final like note of all this um because I really 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 think this is a person that we should know more about that everyone should be this should be a household name Mm -hmm. um I'm gonna give a couple documentary names that people could look up I personally watched um the 1971 documentary called the murder of Fred Hampton and um There's also, if you don't have a ton of time, there's one that's only 27 minutes called Death of a Black Panther, the Fred Hampton story. And then there's also the Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. That last one talks a lot more about the rift between um, J. Edgar Hoover and, you know, Fred Hampton and really how J. Edgar Hoover was just, Fucking gunning for him because he was a fragile white man.
1: <laughs> Poor baby. Yeah.
0: Um, when
1: we uh when you get a chance, will you send me that info so I can throw it on the website? So oh, yeah. if folks didn't catch all of that, I can just type oh, yeah. it out and they yeah, go to the yeah.
0: website and find it. For sure. Cool. So yeah, that is the infuriating story of Fred Hampton. <laughs> And mirrored That's a fucking lot, man. Yeah. Mirrored God, he was amazing. And that's just the most infuriating part. He just, he was so smart. And that's another reason why I think it's so great if you can go and watch any of these documentaries because you can see videos of him speaking. At one point, he's in a meeting with some other Black Panther members and they're all talking about trying to write up some reform and these guys are coming to him with these ideas and you know i'm listening to it going oh yeah that's great that's great yeah that sounds great and he's like well okay but i feel i want more on education here you just say education but i need more i need you to come back to me with more about this because what about these guys in haiti and this happened there you could they just said this he just starts rattling off all this stuff about history he's just so well educated and could just come up with these things off the top of his head and examples of why saying we just need to educate people is not the answer it's how with what
1: yeah make it happen
0: yeah. yeah and I just I was so impressed and then I keep thinking about how he was like 20 and 21 when all of the when he was making all of this and I feel like our youth right now, a lot of the people participating in the Black Lives Matter movement are, are on maybe a little on par with him, if not right there. And it gives me hope, but also I'm just so pissed that we didn't have him then, you know, after (laughs) 21, he could have done so fucking much.
1: He could have fucking been president at some point.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so with that, I'm gonna drink some of my beer.
1: <laughs> Should we take a super quick power beverage break?
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> power break.
1: <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs>
0: All right. Tell me a depressing story. I know you got one.
1: I do. (laughs) I fucking always do.
0: (laughs) Um, This
1: time, so I had actually never heard of this killer. Um, This was a request from one of our listeners. who's a good friend of mine, Derek. Um, And he had mentioned the case and then also recommended a book about this case to me. So I read that book and this is sort of where we ended up. Um, but this is the story of Chili Willie, the jungle killer, who was also the first convicted serial killer in Seattle. Oh, what?
0: Yes, I had never fucking heard of this. Chili Willie, that's amazing. Yes, Chili Willie. Uh, <laughs> it's not cool. Uh, I'm, at it, I'm immediately thinking of that cartoon. I'm like, uh, and he's like, Hachoo! Hachoo! <laughs> that's okay.
1: If only it were that cute. It is, not. <laughs> it is not cute at all. So, Dwayne Lee Harris, better known as Chilly Willy, was the first convicted serial killer in Seattle, killing women in the late 90s in an area referred to as the jungle, which is more formally known as the East Duwamish Greenbelt. Um, It is a green belt on the western slope of Beacon Hill that is known for its homeless encampments and high crime. Yeah. The jungle is... It's very fucking scary. Yeah. The jungle consists of 160 acres underneath and along the elevated area of I-5 south of Dearborn Street and Lucille Street. So it's kind of like where the... If you're going to catch I-90, for example, you would pass kind of right over the top of it to get in the lane to take I-90 basically.
0: On your way to the West Seattle bridge that is no longer. (laughs) That doesn't exist (laughs) anymore. Uh, well, for now, it'll probably be back. It's just not, you know, being a bridge.
1: (laughs) It's it's kind of being nothing right now, except a mess, but yeah. Um, an assessment before January of 2016 counted that there were 201 tents and an estimated that more than 400 homeless people were living in the encampment of the jungle at the time. So it's, it was a very populated area even back in the late 90s. Yeah. Point. Um, so Chile's first victim was, well, that we know of was Denise Harris, who was 40 years old at the time. Denise was an on again, off again preschool teacher from California. Um, after having met a man named James Cooper on a trip to Las Vegas, she decided to further pursue that romantic relationship with him, um, and then relocated to Seattle for a fresh start a few before her death. I'm getting alerts on um, un- Untapped. Sorry, it was like no. We oh. um, <laughs> <Make> need <a bit laughs> some beer. <laughs> We're busy beer. Um, <laughs> so. According to James, the couple still share a residence, but they were not actively still a couple at the time. Hmm. Denise had started drinking really heavily during her time in Seattle, um, and had become really well-known to bartenders in Pioneer Square for being at times very problematically drunk. Um, She'd also developed an occasional crack habit during this time. Yeah. Uh, Denise was reported to do fine for a while, and then all of a sudden she'd go on a couple-day-long binge and start drinking excessively and doing crazy amounts of drugs.
0: Oh my god, we have one of those in West Seattle. (laughs) We have a fucking few of those in West Seattle. Um, Um, (laughs) One in particular (laughs) that I'm thinking of. (laughs) Yes.
1: On the night Denise was murdered, she was reportedly out on one of those binges. Mm -hmm. um denise had been seen by and refused service by several local bartenders due to her level of intoxication she was seen leaving a bar that was called turf uh which i think was like not quite it was somewhere between pioneer square and the market like kind of in that area
0: yeah it doesn't exist
1: anymore i know that
0: wasn't it like a big football bar it
1: was uh, descri- I think it was technically in like Post Alley or something. I can't yeah. remember the area, but it was referred to as like the diveiest of all dive bars. Cool. Like it was like <laughs> one of those places you walk into and you're like, oh, I need a bad life choice. <laughs> <laughs> or, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> or I'm going to have so much fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so one of the bartenders reported seeing Denise leave with a tall, slender man. Um, and Denise was le- left there with the promise of receiving crack from this person, which we all know was a killer. Um, and was then taken to the Greenbelt area called the jungle, where Chili gagged her with her own bra, used her own shoelaces to bind her hands and feet, and then used her own belt to strangle her to death. Based on the condition of her body and lack of DNA evidence on her body, She likely went with Chili voluntarily, but they were unable to definitively say whether or not she'd been raped by him. Hmm. She went missing on September 12th of 1997, but her body was not recovered until January of 1998. The body of Chili's second victim, Antoinette, uh, she went by Tony Jones, wasn't found until February 1st of 1998, and she was the last victim found. Tony was 34 years old. She was also a regular drug user. Specifically, crack and heroin were generally what she used, and was known to frequent Pioneer Square. Mm-hmm. She had apparently been able to find drugs for a couple days, and when a man that she was friends with, who I'm leaving some of the names of associated folks, you can find all this information online. But I was like, we don't need to.
0: Yeah.
1: Hate on it's everybody. To lose not-
0: track of a bunch of names too. I did the totally. same. In my, yeah. I
1: was like, we don't even know all that.
0: Son. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the man
1: that she was friends with said he knew a guy, uh, that could probably get her drugs. And again, she eagerly followed along because she was promised crack. Mm. Her friend also informed her that his friend might want sex in exchange for the drugs. Super. And she agreed well, to do it. Drugs do that to you folks. Don't drugs do a drugs. Drugs are bad. Well, I, like drugs. <sighs> I mean, I smoke pop, but that's different. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not crack, okay. It's a different
0: story for another um, different day.
1: <laughs> that's a different podcast altogether. Definitely. <laughs> uh okay. So according to Chili's own confession, he said that Tony and the two and two other men that he claimed were gang members had ripped him off when doing a drug deal and stole a bunch of crack from him. So he had a friend boring her to him with the promise of drugs, and upon her arrival, he asked her if she remembered him. Mm. She claimed that both he and the friend uh, tied her up. He kept claiming that he and a friend did a lot of things, oh. which you'll hear more about. Tied her up with her own shoelaces. Seeing a trend, shoelaces? Mm. And he told her, you should remember me. You stole my motherfucking drugs. This is an exact wow. quote. He said she began pleading with him and said, quote, oh don't, please, I have kids, I have kids. And then when the detectives asked him how he responded to her pleas, he said, I don't wanna hear that shit cause now it's time to die, Test- tell your testimony to Jesus. And then choked her with her bouts until she was dead. And then he just threw some cardboard over the top of her and left her down in the jungle. Wow. She also gagged Tony with her own underwear during that attack.
0: Oh, again, more, what's with the underwear? Seriously,
1: what's with all of the things? The
0: shoelaces and the underwear and the, mm.
1: It's, I wish I could tell you it gets better, but you know, it fucking doesn't. Yep.
0: (laughs) I know. (laughs) Just to show you
1: how little compassion, regard for human, more specifically, female life that Chili had, when the detective asked him how he knew that she was dead when he left her body, he responded very coldly because her eyes popped out and she pissed herself. You can really tell by the eyes.
0: Wow! Yeah.
1: Investigators asked where his friend was during this time, and Shelly told them he watched, but he didn't do anything, and he knew that I knew that he wouldn't say anything because I'd kick his fucking ass. Ugh. The last known victim was Olivia Smith. Uh, Olivia was a 25-year-old Native American woman. Um, Olivia was again a regular drug user. Like his MO was basically to trick women with drugs. You know? Yeah. Um, on the night of her death, she had been in and out of all the bars in Pioneer Square. Um, and during that time, she met Chili and followed him out to get high in a nearby outdoor stairwell. We have a shitload of those here in Seattle that go down into basements and whatever. Mm -hmm. Olivia, who was a known sex worker in the area, was extremely intoxicated and essentially went with him because she was like, you're either going to pay me for sex Mm-hmm. Or you're gonna give me drugs for sex. it's good like those are the yeah. options
0: doing thing for sex.
1: <laughs> apparently he agreed, and they had sex there was um in the reports there was some speculation that the sex part may have been less voluntary um mm-hmm. but since she was a known sex worker, they can say for sure,
0: yeah
1: um, so he finished up, and as she was getting dressed she told him she wanted what she came for and Chili told her he wasn't paying her and he also had no drugs damn he then looked around to see that there were no possible witnesses and slid behind her and tied a ligature around her neck Olivia who was like nobody's fool and had been yep. living on the street and doing this shit for a long time mm. pulled a knife skill a, me- a knife skill Jesus Christ a <laughs> knife out uh, <laughs> and started cutting at him Well, Chili tackled her around the the <laughs> she she certainly fucking did (laughs) um that's awesome he pulled her down to the ground and tried to get the knife for her but he missed he Mm -hmm. got her on the ground but he missed her and so she stabbed him in the hand cutting him really badly in the hand nice um he was able to overpower her unfortunately from what i recall she was a very small lady like very Mm -hmm. small yeah um chili then with her own knife slashed her deeply in the throat and then again in the chest and then in the torso he stabbed her several times in all of these areas but he also kept stabbing her which there were other reports of similar wounds to other victims for some Mm -hmm. reason he kept stabbing women in the butt weird which is a weird i mean stabbing anybody's weird but to like make a point to start stabbing them in the ass is a really weird thing to do
0: the um, psychologist in me is like, What is that I about? Know. What happened to me you too. in your childhood? That's, <laughs> I mean, that's what people always are like, Why do you like true crime? I'm like, Because it's
1: fascinating. Like, what the fuck it is like, this weird things, things
0: that happened to people and like what made them that way? And totally.
1: Yeah. Um, so, Chili removed her tennis shoes and then used her laces to tie her up again. Mm. Chili's or Chili, Olivia's body was found on January 10th, of 1998. Dang. So during this time, the detectives had pieced together that they were likely dealing with a serial killer. Yeah. Um, and in a very bizarre twist, the detective, like the head detectives running the case, received a phone call from Chili, who was serving time for robbery in the King County jail down in Kent, Washington.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Chili told the detectives that he knew who killed the niece, and then later ended up saying he also knew who killed the other two people. Shelley <laughs> was able to squeeze a few cappuccinos and some cruises to the crime scenes from the police while telling them what he, quote, knew about the cases, insisting that a man named Mike or Mark Smith was actually responsible, <laughs> but that he himself had been present for some of these murders, but he was being threatened by the supposed killer. Uh, so cl- clearly the detectives were like, this guy's full of shit, but yeah. he did know a lot about each crime scene, like more than he should know. Yeah, but they couldn't figure out how he was lying yet. They didn't have enough proof to prove he killed it. Yeah, he killed yeah. all these women, but they knew something was up. Mm. So they started looking at Achilles' past during this time, um, and also during this time, investigators. You know, like I think people often think that um, when detectives are working on cases like this, that it's their only case. But the this is oh, kind yeah. of goes along with the like deep on the police thing is that they're sometimes dealing with too many things and mm-hmm. homicide detectives are usually doing multiple cases at once. Yeah. Um, and in this situation, it kind of worked out in their favor. Um, they received a call about a shooting involving, uh, with one person killed and one person in critical condition at a local motel. Mm-hmm. And it essentially was a drug deal that had gone wrong. But the one main witness, her name was Ayasha, may have opened the door for the shooter. So Ayasha was taken into protective custody, um, and they basically put her up in a nicer hotel and somewhere that they could keep tabs on her. Yeah. Just in case the suspect in this case was going to come after her and try to kill her for being the witness and this mm-hmm. the only main witness in this crime. Mm. While the police had her in the car and they were on the way to the safe spot, um, they asked her a lot about, obviously, what she knew about the crime, but then also there was some small talk in that bride, and they learned that Ayasha had been homeless, addicted to crack, and been a sex worker since she was 16 years old. And then went on, she went on to say that she'd been in danger a lot of times, um, and with all the close calls she's had, only one really stood out to her as, like, the scariest thing. Yeah. She told them, I almost got killed by some dude named Chili Willy. <laughs> she said, My friend Ryan and I met Chili in Pioneer Square. Chili had been drinking all day and was talking some weird shit, but we all took a bus to Ryan's apartment to smoke some rock. When we got there, Ryan and I went to the bedroom to smoke, and all of a sudden, Chili comes in and starts beating on Ryan. He beat him really bad, too, and then he gagged him. After that, Chili raped me and tied me up. These are the shoes I was wearing. He took the laces out and tied me up with them. I was able to escape when I heard Chili on the phone telling someone that he needed an alibi because he was about to kill some people. Oh, She's, and then she said, shit, I got out the door and ran naked down the street. And that oh, yeah. their, Chili's account of that was similar. Like, she got up and ran out the door butt naked. Like, Damn. she was like, fuck this shit, that dude's gonna kill me. Mm-hmm.
0: So after hearing her
1: account that day, the investigators asked if she had made a police report and she said she had, which I was like, Yay! Yeah. So many women don't report shit.
0: Yeah. Well, because um, especially as sex workers, they're not believed. Exactly.
1: Um, but she made that report with the King County Sheriff's, and the investigators were able to verify and pull that report and use it for evidence in the murder trial for yes. these women, which is fantastic.
0: Oh, yeah. Um,
1: with that as more evidence to prove the methods used by the killer, the investigators had already begun to suspect that Chili was in fact the killer, despite his constant stories about his quote friend, or that guy, Mark or Mike, <laughs> who kept changing the name too. Um, when they went to get Chili for another little ride-along adventure, um, mm-hmm. they basically told him, we know you're full of shit, and if you keep lying to us, we're not going to come pick you up anymore. Damn. And so while out on this outing after that chat, he took them to the location that Tony Jones's body had been found and was able to describe the scene perfectly. He then told them he knew that there were more bodies out in the woods and the investigators got a little spooked because they were like, he's being so open with his knowledge that they were like, we feel like if we walk into the woods, he might've actually set something up to have us killed or something. So they didn't take him out into the woods. They wrote it all down and they didn't go. And they went back to the homicide office to try to get a formal statement in writing about what he knew about Tony Jones's murder. And then all of a sudden, Chili just confesses. For no apparent reason. Huh. He said to Detective Mike, I think his name is pronounced Sysinski, who is also the detective that wrote the book. Yeah. By the way. Um, Chili called him Mikey Mike, which I think is really amusing. But he... um, (laughs) He said, Mikey, Mike, I'm tired. I've been killing my whole life. I killed Denise Harris and TJ, which is what he called Tony Jones. Mm -hmm. And that bitch in the stairwell, plus more you don't know about. The detectives told him to stop and that they needed him to, like, hear his rights and call a lawyer. Chili told them that he would talk, but he didn't want a lawyer. He then went on to describe more graphically what he had done to his victims. And during his confession, he would start by saying things like, He and this Mike person he kept talking about killed Denise together. But he kept slipping up what role which man played in the whole process, including Denise's. Um, He then recounted the events in several, like in extreme detail about all three women's murders. During a second interview with Chile after this, Mm -hmm. they asked him if he recalled an incident with a woman named Ayasha. And he said, oh yeah, I remember her. We went down to the park and had sex. She wanted to get paid, but I didn't pay her shit. (laughs) And I said, okay, well, what happened the next time you saw her? And Chili said, "Uh, I was with this dude named Shorty. We ran into Asha while taking the bus to Shorty's place. And then when I got there, I decided to take sex from her. Take it. (laughs) Yes. I'm using his exact words because they're very... Shorty started talking some shit to me so I beat his ass and stomped on his head. I tied him up and tied Ayasha to the bed with some shoestrings. And then I called my partner for an alibi. The interviewing detective said, Chili, why did you need an alibi? They said, because I'm going to kill, I was going to kill both of them. Damn. And then when asked how he was going to kill them, he responded, I was going to strangle their motherfucking asses. That's what I was going to do. Jesus. Chili, who by the way was fucking married, it no. Is. Then asked the detectives if they could call his wife. <laughs> yes. What? So I'm probably butchering his wife's name, but uh, her name was Tosh, I think. T-A-U-S-H. Tosh? Tosh? Okay. I don't know. Um, when his wife arrived, she told the detectives that they had been married since 1996, but they got married after only knowing each other for a few weeks. Chili then told his wife what he had done. He didn't hold back at all. He just went into it. Like I killed these women, this is what I did. Dang. So obviously his wife was horrified and distraught. And uh-huh. after his confession, they decided to separate her and question her personally. Mm-hmm. And they asked if she remembered the night that Chilly, uh, du- they had called him Dwayne because she didn't know him as Chili Willy. She knew him as Dwayne.
0: Right. I'm still like, how uh, did he get that nickname?
1: That was his uh street name
0: it's just what he the, yeah okay
1: <laughs> um but she they asked her if she recalled the night that he cut his hand
0: oh okay. and
1: she did remember and she said that he told her that he did it while he was killing somebody but she thought he was quote talking a bunch of shit so she blew him off wow according to Chile himself he apparently received a ride from someone after that murder and got a ride all the way down to Vancouver, Washington, so that he wouldn't be in the same area the crime was committed in case Dang. it came up. That's like four hours away. Yeah.
0: Three. Um,
1: <laughs> so with all of this information and a confession, Chili went to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, much to his dismay, and maybe a slightly some fantastic karma, both Chili's judge and deputy prosecutor were women. And yeah, I was like, (laughs) yes. During the trial, not only did Chili try to again change his story and say that now the investigators were lying about his confession, (laughs) but he also started shouting obscenities at the judge, was pushing chairs, tossing objects, arguing constantly with the prosecutor. (laughs) having outbursts with the female legal team yelling things in response to questions they asked as tramp bitch and another one was quote I ain't killed no one you tramp bitch oh my god after using such language towards the judge he was removed from the courtroom Uh until he quote cooled off (laughs) Uh, he was then informed that his behavior would no longer be tolerated and essentially the judge was like you don't actually have to be in this room for us to do this case so chill the fuck out (laughs) During the trial, Chili's ex-wife testified, expressing to the judge that Chili was a very dangerous man, recounting many abuses, which included being choked and tied up in front of their infant child, and expressing extremely deep concern over the lives of any women he would encounter in the future. During the the trial, Chili encountered some members of the media outside the courtroom and was recorded commenting in response to a question they asked, saying, People die every day. I don't feel sorry for the victims.
0: Dang.
1: Finally, Chile took the stand. So remember now that he's decided he's fucking innocent. Uh, <laughs> he was asked if he told the detectives that he killed Denise, Tony, and Olivia. And he said that he had not. He said that he went on the ride alongs to get out of jail, but the investigators would show him crime scene pictures and started threatening him to tell them that he did it, like to confess. then they asked if he killed the women and he said no in all the cases except for some reason olivia he was like i'll take that one don't know why weird he tried to say that she actually attacked him with a knife and therefore all of this was self-defense so remember what he did to her body though you don't do those things in self-defense
0: yeah no the questioning continued and chili started getting
1: more and more agitated and i guess his attorney kept trying to whisper things like Chill, you gotta calm down. Hey, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. And the judge finally just yelled over everybody and said, you cannot speak to him while he is testifying. Oh, shit. (laughs) So he got in trouble. Um, During his testimony, he would go on to refer to the victims and the cases as that bitch in the stairwell, quote, that hoe. And in response to Tony Jones, he said, I don't give a fuck about her. Dang. After his very dramatic trial, Chili was found guilty and sentenced to 94 years uh, in prison. Good. Uh, at his sentencing, Chili was strapped into one of those restraint chairs. Oh, like Because yeah. he had been such a crazy person. But he was sitting yeah. there eating candy like everything was fine. <laughs> and they asked him if he had anything he wanted to say. And this mm-hmm. is just goes to show you how fucking crazy this guy is. This is very long. Yeah. He said, your honor. I would like to say this. I don't got nothing against the courts. I don't got nothing against the prosecutors. I don't got nothing against you. I don't got nothing against my attorney, Mr. Hicks. He did his job, the fulfilledness. Helped me through the whole system. I have nothing against the detectives. I have nothing against my ex-wife. I have not one thing against her. I know she hates that I caused a lot of problems for her. I asked her for forgiveness for that. And I hope that when I'm sentenced for a long time like that, And he kind of paused and he said, I haven't seen my daughter in a great deal. I hope that she would take the time to let my daughter correspond with me. The system can have their 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. I grew up in the system my whole life. I have did all my time in penitentiaries and juvenile homes. I have grown up in all of them. I have nothing to hate, to scream, or to hate. What I'm sitting here for is murder and I have killed somebody. And I'm willing to take the whole time and do every day of it. I'm not going to run away from anything. Sentence me to whatever you got to sentence me to, Your Honor. I welcome it, I honor it, and I respect it. Because that's (laughs) what I must have. But the whole point that I come to, I'm not the worstest enemy of the system. You're going to have plenty more. Every day someone's shooting or killing. Every day is going to be chaos. I wasn't just going to be put away, Mr. Harris, and you're going to go to bed and sleep in your sweet rooms. There's more of us. And I have nothing against you, Judge Petchman. You did your job and you helped me. I have nothing against you, Mr. Barrett, who was the head prosecutor. Mm -hmm. I don't have anything against none of them. I can speak and say what they want to say about me, the detectives can say what they want about me, but if I was a bad person that they had to deal with so badly, they gave me cigarettes and they gave me rides and they enjoyed every minute of it with me. (laughs) I just asked for the families of these victims for forgiveness, but you're not getting justice any way you look at it. You're not gonna get justice regardless of what you give me if you give me all the time. I'm still walking the yard. I still got radios and I got TVs. I'm still just gonna kick it. So let's go on with my sentence and thank you, ma'am. And after that long-winded, arrogant fucking statement, the judge did not hesitate for a second and said, Mr. Harris, in my tenure, of on the bench of 11 years, I have never run into anyone who showed the lack of reverence for a human life that you have shown me. Mm. I can only speculate to, as to what the horrors that may have created someone like you, uh, who make, would make your mind work this way. But your bone-chilling remarks concerning how you preyed upon these individuals, humiliated and destroyed their lives, and then laughed about it, leaves me to the conclusion that I must do everything that I can to ensure that you're not free to be at large again. Ooh. And with that, she him to the highest possible sentence and said, it's really quite a shame, Mr. Harris, because I think that, as I've told you before, you're actually quite a smart man. And Shelly nodded and said, very. And then she responded to this saying, and what a waste for someone to take a good mind and use it for ill. And as far as I know, Chili is still serving that sentence and Kalalam, I can't even say it, Kalalam, Kalalam, how do you say it? Bay Correction Center, it's out on the coast. Kalalam
0: or Kalalam? It makes me want to be
1: like, help me on Robert. Yeah. Uh, but he's at that correction facility, but he okay. initially had been sent to Walla Walla, but apparently he went and choked his cellmate with an extension cord for drinking his cup of coffee. Oh,
0: cool. But he was very reasonable. <laughs> I, mean, I would not be happy if somebody took my coffee either, but I feel like I would probably just yell and I'm not, like, what the fuck, man? not, not really try to murder like, someone over
1: coffee. Right. <laughs> I cannot, I feel like I, I mean, everything I said on this story was super graphic and really heavy.
0: Yeah, but
1: it doesn't even scratch the surface. If you go to YouTube and look up his court trials, this dude is like
0: just stone face, no problems, not he giving doesn't give a, shit, a shit, shit
1: about women. Ugh. It, it's Man. horrifying. And I never heard of him. I was like, how? And I so I also was like, well,
0: why didn't we hear about this? And yeah,
1: the detective that wrote the book, and also just r- doing research and kind of thinking about was it the was
0: it Sosinski, the. Yes. Okay.
1: Who, he actually went on to do a lot of other big cases too, by the way. Yeah, but, I, um,
0: one of the ones, the Pearl Congsley, but, that I said his name wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He goes on to do mm-hmm. lots of stuff, but yeah. um, the, he mentions this in the book, but also during research, I realized that just around this time when the murders were happening is when Binet Ramsey passed away.
0: Oh. And so a
1: bunch of Black women um, or people of color, I should say, cause they weren't all black, but, um, mm. one was Native American, but people of color were murdered by a black man, but that was way less important and way less
0: yeah. worthy news than
1: a rich white girl going missing.
0: Yeah. A rich white little girl that shouldn't have been dressed up in the way she was in the first place. Potentially murdered by her brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, it's kind of amazing. That happens a lot. There was uh, yeah. um, also a serial killer who I can't think of who the fuck he is for life me right now. When we found out about Joseph D'Angelo getting caught, uh-huh. that same week, another serial killer was caught and none of us ever heard about it.
0: <laughs> Crazy. I'll have
1: to look it up. to mention what it was. I can't think of what his name was, but I was horrified to hear that.
0: Ugh. The jungle. Man, that area is so messed up. There's... It, it, even now, I've had to walk yep. through there. Like, I've missed a
1: bus coming home from downtown and been like, fuck. And this is like before Lyft and Uber and shit. Oh, and
0: um, walk through Pioneer Square.
1: And yeah, and I had to walk through the lower bridge into West Seattle. That yeah. The scariest fucking I've ever made. It was terrifying.
0: Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that that jungle area specifically. There's there's a podcast I listen to, and it's talking about specific murders that happened. And it was like this mass murder that, and it's still unsolved. Um, and while these, it's you know one of those procedural what you know podcasts where they the entire season is just about the one thing, and um, yeah. Anyway, along the story, they're interviewing people and they're like, well, yeah, but that's also about the time that so-and-so died because they got stabbed. And it's just like people that l- basically live in that area, they're so desensitized because they, they see murder a lot. Oh, yeah. Murder and people just ODing a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot so sad.
1: Yeah, I don't, there's very few times in West Seattle that I have been like scared. Yeah. When I've been out and about, because usually it's some crackhead yelling at you and you're like, okay, whatever. And you just blow them off. Yeah. But that area walking through it every single time I've gone even driven through it. I'm like, yeah. Oh, God.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Crazy. Yeah, don't move to Seattle. It rains all the time and there's murders.
1: <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Maybe
0: the rents will go down. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't have bridges anymore.
1: <laughs> That's true. You're just trapped here.
0: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> crazy, crazy stories. Yes. Do you have any
1: shower things. Uh, I don't have time for
0: them this week. I know. No, not really any shower thoughts. Um, We were really fortunate. A friend of mine, a couple friends of mine are in the area right now from Kansas City and just kind of they stopped and had like a barbecue with us in the backyard um, on Monday before they headed off on their big self-led tour of the pacific northwest um so that was really fun we ended up making a fire pit just impromptu utilizing an old keg (laughs) nice (laughs) yeah so gordon had already cut the top part off because he was thinking of using it to brew beer because that'd be just kind of cool to boil water and brew beer in an old keg,
1: yeah. um,
0: but it ended up just kind of not, well, it ended up being a little bit more of a pain in the ass than it was worth for brewing, so he just had it, and then he was like, well, if I drill a few holes towards the bottom for airflow, we could actually turn it into a pit, a, a fire pit, so the guys were, had tools out and drilling holes, and Drinks were had.
1: <laughs> Sounds fucking great. I love yeah. a fire pit.
0: Yeah. It's good times. You guys will have to come over and hang out in the backyard and drink some beers and
1: make s'mores on your fire pit.
0: Yeah. And then you can, and then we can try and get Gordon to eat one. Cause he hates s'mores. <laughs> what is wrong with him? <laughs> he doesn't like things that are sticky. <laughs>
1: missing out all the good stuff sticky
0: (laughs) he also had a a weird bad experience with a s'more one time so i'll let him tell that story (laughs) like
1: it burned the shit out of him or something no
0: there might have been rocks in it oh my god
1: (laughs) well no wonder he's like s'mores are trying to kill me yeah (laughs) (laughs)
0: hey when you try and eat s'mores when you're super wasted it might be a bad idea. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's a bad idea. Except for Daniel's birthday last year, I took some to work the cabin we stayed at. And yeah. I was making them with Reese's peanut butter cups.
0: Oh, yes, yes, yes. And they were really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love to incorporate the different types of chocolate candy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's the, there are those one, um, little chocolate squares that also have caramel in the center of them. I think it's like Ghirardelli, actually. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, those are great.
1: That would be good. Mm-hmm. Daniel's is like caramel, but I would like that.
0: Yep. How do you, uh, anyway. I know, I know.
1: Every, every time he says, I don't like caramel, I'm like, what? Okay, you know what? Okay, fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> fine, I will get all of, the, all of it. <laughs> yep oh um yeah so getting to see friends and our county finally being in actually in phase two to catch up with the rest of the counties those are always yeah. positive things
1: and hey although the we just it have that, that mandatory mask
0: yeah well whatever
1: <laughs> i know i'm just glad that i'm able to like get out of the house and go to work a couple days a week you know
0: yeah definitely because
1: otherwise i'm bored
0: i might be back by the time this comes out maybe maybe (laughs) i keep saying that (laughs) they
1: might want to remodel something else you never know
0: i know they keep damn i'm not even going to recognize the place when i go back (laughs) Oh, all right. Well, shall we close out our tabs? We should. All right. Well, until next Monday, um, drink good local beer and please tip your fucking bartenders. Yeah. I'll piggies. i For more information, we can be found on Instagram at Seattle underscore on underscore tap email at Seattle on tap at gmail.com or our website Seattle on tap.com. You can also like us on Facebook and all of the Seattle on tap original
1: music is provided by bubble baptism courtesy of the subterranaut recording collective.